0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to continue our, our way through this passage. Last week we looked at a few words, really, uh, just the opening phrase of this section, um, a very, very important section, and one that uh, I trust will become important for you if you're not familiar with it. We've been considering Paul's exhortations to this young church, a church that was founded and perhaps has been in existence for less than a year. And Paul is giving past he has pastoral concerns for this young church and he's giving exhortations to them uh, beginning in chapter 4 and 5. There's a series of exhortations. And the exhortations thus far that we have seen is first of all to press on, that you would excel still more. And then the exhortation in the text before us is that they would... Not just press on aimlessly, but that you would press on to holiness, that you would press on to sanctification, that you would grow in sanctification. Paul begins and ends this paragraph, we're looking at verses 3 to 8, but he begins and ends it with a reference to God's authority, and so I think that this is something that we should pay special, close attention to. All of the word of God is inspired by him, but this is bookended with the very authority of Jesus Christ and of God before us. And so I think we should pay special attention. God desires His people to be holy. He desires His people to be set apart. And in our text, uh, that will come out very clear. As I said, we looked at last time just the opening phrase, it's likely that when Timothy returned from his visit, when he returned to Corinth, where Paul was, that he brought back some troubling news. That this young church perhaps had begun to fall back into their old ways of dallying and dealing and sexual immorality. And so Paul feels the, the, the need, the pastoral urgency, if you will, to write to them on this subject. Last time we looked at three basic thoughts, that we must know God's will, we must live holy lives and the motivation to do so. And we spoke of how how we have to be careful that, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how we can know the will of God. There's a lot of false thinking out there, you know, false thinking even in the Christian church that God exists to make me happy. Is that true? No, (laughs) that is not true. Now a byproduct will certainly be of a life of obedience will be joy and fulfillment and those types of things. But God does not exist just to simply revolve around you, dear saint, tonight. And you must understand that. I gave you the, the, the story of this Joe Seisman. who used to be a quarterback. He's a commentator on ESPN. He allegedly was explaining to his soon-to-be second wife why he had an affair, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. What folly? What silliness, even from the lips of an unconverted one such as this man? Well, we looked at last time. The reason why I took that first phrase is I wanted to give some introductory comments as to what sanctification is. And I'm not going to review all of those, but I will review a few of those. The root of the word sanctification is the same word for holiness, and it means to be set apart. Right? We, we looked at that in some detail in a non-moral sense it could be said of a dedicated surgeon that he is sanctified to the work of brain surgery or of any other type of surgery in that he is set apart he is given to that and that is his task the same could be th- said of a thief a great cat burglar that he is set apart to that type of thievery and so that's in a non-moral sense of what the word means. Now the distinction is that the word to sanctify uh, in the Greek means to set apart, but the word sanctification usually speaks of that process, that process, that ongoing process that we see in our lives. To put it another way, there's declarative sanctification where at one point in time that you persist, you're positionally sanctified, just as you are justified by faith alone. But then there's also a progressive aspect to it in our daily growth to become like Christ. And that is a process. Now, tonight we're going to see Paul's clear exhortation to holiness here. And it's important to understand that in the, the city of Thessalonica, being on that hub, that, that, that hub there where all this traffic was coming through, just about every type of sexual sin that you can imagine. Was ramped there. And certainly Paul was concerned. Concerned for some that maybe, maybe they had not fallen back into it. Maybe some have. We don't know the exact context. But certainly it's all around and Paul fuels the need to address it. And so he gives very clear, a very clear and direct command to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the norm uh, regarding marriage relationships was so perverted in Thessalonica that it seemed okay for husbands to use servants to satisfy himself. In fact, one philosopher said this, John MacArthur quotes this, from the Greco-Roman era, that mistresses we have for our pleasure, but wives we keep for, to bear us legitimate children and to keep our home. That was just the common thinking of the day without the moral backbone of Christianity such as we have here in America. Not to say that we're not perverted and on that road. (laughs) For us today, we're bombarded with all kinds of things that scream out and say, if you want to be happy, you need to satisfy yourself in this way or in that way or indulge into this. And a Christian, in many ways, really has to go through life like this to remain pure these impure thoughts these images that come in sometimes just a split second image that you lay your eyes upon will come back and haunt you for days, weeks, even years and we need to be careful what we allow in the eye gate just as well as the ear gate the Bible speaks much about our sexuality sex is good in the context in which God has created it and the Bible speaks much about it. But your body is not your own. To do with what you want, you have been bought with a price. If you're here as a child of God tonight. It is vital that you control your body in all areas and that you lead a holy life. Well, let's read the text. The title of the message is, You must live a holy life according to the will of God, abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality, and let's read the text before us, and I am fighting a bug, so I will be taking more drinks tonight than normal. But I've yet to cough, praise the Lord. <clears throat> Follow with me, please, First Thessalonians 4, looking at verses three to eight: "For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as also we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May God rivet these words in our hearts and minds, brethren. So tonight, we have three simple points, looking at just the very first phrase again. You must determine to live a holy life according to the will of God. And this is review, but how can we know the will of God? It's not by Ouija boards, like do I marry Lisa, my neighbor? Do I propose to her? Let me pull out the Ouija board. No, it's not by dreams, it's not by fleeces. How can we know the will of God? It's from His Holy Word. It's very clearly set before us what God expects of His people. God has spoken in His Word as the final authority. We need not go elsewhere to look for the will of God. And this bears mentioning, some of you weren't here last week, but God's will is thought of theologically in two ways. His decreative will and His moral will. His decreative will... You can't thwart that will. That is the divine purpose of God that will be accomplished no matter what. The moral will of God is his commanding will. It's what we ought to do, but some can reject. And some very clearly reject it. And even here in verse 8, Paul makes reference to those that would reject this. Now God is holy in all of his nature, and he demands holiness from his people I really appreciated the, the songs that we sung, the last two in particular, the beauty of holiness. There's nothing beautiful in holiness if you are not a child of God. If you've not been set apart to, to serve Him and to love Him, there's nothing beauty in, in, in holiness. And that wonderful song, Holy, 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 reminded of the, the anthem of, of the seraphim and the angels in and, and that heavenly throne room praising God. Secondly, verses 3b to verse 6, you must abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this word for sexual immorality, as it's translated in the um, NAS, fornication, it may be translated in your versions, is the Greek word that you know, pornea. Right? I think you know what what that word means. And I think it's best to take... The, uh, the, the broadest meaning in this context here, that it's not speaking of one particular sexual sin, but it's speaking of all sexual sin. And I think it's important um, to consider that. All type of sex outside of a monogamous relationship between a husband and wife is sin, all sex, outside of that relationship. Is sin Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It is remarkable how many times throughout the word of God where it speaks of God will judge those who are given to this sin. And we need to be reminded of these things. Sexual purity is not optional in the Christian life. When you say yes to Jesus or whatever, when God saved you and you came to Him, it's not as though you pick and choose what you want to put on and and, what you don't want to take off or what you want to put on. You should be putting off sin, putting on holiness. You don't pick and choose. It's not optional. And I think that it's safe to say that all sex outside of marriage could be characterized as unsafe sex it's not just if you have some type of apparatus or some type of something to divert things it is unsafe if it's outside of the confines of the marriage bed not only as far as all the the physical things that could come upon you but the eternal judgment that will await those who dally with this Now, as I said, it's not clear if the Thessalonians were actually falling back into this, or if some of them were. It's it's not exactly clear if if they were in this behavior, but certainly Paul has in mind the strong temptation to indulge in it, because it is literally all around them, much like today. Now, it's interesting, too, that pagans would have looked at fornication or, or these types of things indifferently or even some favorably. Like that's a good thing to do. And that's the way the pagans would have would have thought of this. And so as these young believers are saved, being formerly pagans, remember, they turn from idols to the living God, chapter one and verse nine. As these are saved, suddenly now they've got to transform their thinking as they're, being, as they're born again, as they're being made holy, and they're pulled out of that lifestyle. But as Paul has left for some time and as the young church is, is trying to survive and they're doing so many things well as we saw in chapters 1 and chapter 2, yet the temptation is still there. And it was probably a very strong temptation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2-4 to four, speaks of those that, that malign you because you're not falling into the same dissipation as them because you used to formally walk. That was probably the case with some of these members of this church. In other words, those on the outside, the pagans, they knew how they used to live and perhaps they were taunted. But consider us here in the United States. Think of where we have come in 240 years or 50 years, however long it's been, 30 years, I guess, 230 years, as sexuality has expressed itself more and more through the 20s, the 1920s, the 30s, and then the 60s, the sexual revolution, as it is called, where it's just, you just bear it all, and, and it's all about satisfying yourself, and then fast forward even more to our day, where a freedom of sexual expression has now been elevated to some type of cultural God that all will bow down to, and this is the ultimate goal, is to express yourself and to fulfill yourself sexually, even if it's outside of the way that God has ordained. Instant gratification, that's the rule of the day, isn't it? It's all around you. For some, fulfilling one's sexual desires and fantasies becomes the number one goal in their life it's a lifelong pursuit. Pedophiles and others in its foul. Casual sex these days is just looked upon as another form of fun or entertainment. Movie, family fun center, casual sex, it's just another form. That's the way it's looked at in our pagan culture and our postmodern mindset that's all around us. Thessalonica was utterly pagan in this Roman Greco. Culture, and it's, it very well could have been more perverse than what our culture is, because it did not have that backbone of Christianity, as I mentioned. Now, as holy Christian, God wants you to completely abstain from sexual sin. Look at the text here. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, he's going to explain it now, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's implicitly imperatival. That is, it's implicitly a command here because it represents a requirement made by God. And it's interesting here that Paul uses a little play on words that's a little hard to catch, but to abstain literally means what? To keep away from. To be sanctified means what? To set apart. And so you're set apart to this. You need to keep away from that. He uses that play of words. So Paul gives the call to keep away from pornea. Not only is such a separation declared as the will of God very clearly in our text, but it is vastly different, different from the pagan environment in which they were living. Now in Paul's later epistles, he would use the same, a different Greek word, but with the same root. And he would amplify a little bit of this. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And with this word, it broadens the the actual meaning of the word. It extends beyond the actual act, but it includes unclean thoughts and intentions. Look at Ephesians 5 and verse 3. But immorality, or any impurity, that's the word, or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Also Colossians 3, very clearly, in verse 5, I'll just read it, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It goes beyond the actual act. It includes the unclean thoughts. It includes the motives and intentions of the heart. And isn't that exactly what our Lord Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount? He made it very, very clear, didn't He? In chapter 5 of Matthew, that to look on a woman with lust in your heart is as though you have committed the act with her. It's elevated the standard. And so not only must we abstain from these things as a physical act, but we must abstain from these things in our minds, and in our motives. In the forests of northern Europe and um, parts of Asia, there lives a little animal called an ermine, and it's known for its snow-white fur that it grows in winter. I've never heard of this animal, but I think it's, uh, worth talking about here. He inst- instinctively protects his white coat against anything that would soil it. So when, hunters, when fur hunters take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine, they don't set a, a snare or a trap to try to catch them. Do you know what they do? They wipe grease and grime all over its health. They find like the hollow tree or the cleft of the rock where this little animal lives and they put grease and grime inside of it. And then what they do is they let loose the dogs. And when the dogs chase this thing, it gets there and it will not go inside. It would rather die than soil the white, the purity of the white coat. Purity is more precious than life for this little animal. And how that ought to be the mindset of the Christian. That purity is so important that I will not give in to that temptation no matter how strong it comes against me. That needs to be our mindset. On verses 4 and 5, moving on, you must possess, literally acquire, your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Look at verse 4. First, that each of you know how to possess, or if you look at the margin, acquire his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is actually the most difficult phrase in the whole book of Thessalonians. Um, There's... Lots of debate as to what vessel means here. I'm just going to very, very briefly uh, touch on these. It could mean our body. Sometimes the word is translated referring to our body. The Greek word is actually the word for vessel. So all the places where you see speaking of vessels, it's actually it's the same Greek word. But Peter does use it referring to his wife, right? Or a wife in First uh, Peter three seven, um, which would go along with. A biblical theology of 1 Corinthians 7, 2, where it says each man ought to take a wife, and also the extra-biblical use of the word would refer, it's often referred to as a wife, but so the context here has something of the idea, what I think, is putting off immorality, sexual immorality, and put on marriage so that you will not sin in this way but I I like the idea of it referring to the body that is gaining mastery and gaining control over the body. I'll let you to decide. Literally though, it's that each of you acquire for himself a vessel. The for himself is why commentators lean towards the idea of it it referring to a spouse. Because for yourself, it's referring to your own body. How do you acquire for yourself your own body that you already have? Do you see that? So that's That's for you to decide there, but the point is clear. That each of you learn how to possess, maintain your own vessel in sanctification and honor. And if it means putting off immorality, put on marriage. But it's important to make this qualification, particularly for those of you who are single here, is that don't ever think and deceive yourself that by getting married suddenly all sexual temptation vanishes. It's not there anymore because you have your wife. Not true. Not true. All of your sexual energy should go towards your wife or your future one for those of you who are married. You need to reserve that for her. Well, how would this apply to the single brethren among us? You have to save this energy for your future wife or husband. Look for a spouse if you have a desire to be married. It's a good thing to be married, the Bible says. There's very few that have the gift of singleness. And don't give in to sexual sin. Don't give in to that. That is baggage that you will have to drag into the marriage relationship that will come back and haunt you. You will wish that you never did that. First 1 Corinthians 10.13 is so clear that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. And so we have the encouragement there and to learn contentment. Well, he goes on, not in lustful passion as the Gentiles. Look in verse 5. That each, each of you know how to possess or acquire his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not. Know God, that the Gentiles. This lustful passion is an unbridled and unrestrained expression of passion. There's no control. It's the idea of following after every little inclination and impulse that comes your way, and in indulging in immoral sexual acts. Paul says very clearly here: those like the Gentiles who what do not know God. If, if your lifestyle is manifested by that. Every little impulse, an inclination that you're running after, it's very likely that you do not know God. So, we need to maintain, we need to acquire, we need to possess uh, our own vessel in sanctification and honor. In verse 6, the first part, he says that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter. And, That's, I believe, the third admonition here. I think there's three. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that you put on a vessel, and that you don't defraud the brethren. Sexual sin is a sin against your neighbor in one way or another, isn't it? If you commit adultery tonight with somebody, you are violating someone else's spouse. If you commit fornication with somebody that's not yet married, you're violating, you're sinning against that person in some way. You're taking from someone else's future spouse. You're stealing virginity, whatever else. It's a sin against your neighbor. That's the idea here, that no man transgress and defraud his brother. And Paul's choice of words here is very interesting. He says that no man transgress and defraud. The word for transgress literally means to step over the bounds, to go beyond where you should go and to overstep the proper limits. And the word for defraud is to take advantage of someone by implying that what is offered is more valuable than it is, to exploit by deception or to cheat. And so the idea here is that, and the word for defraud could be translated take advantage, I think the ESV and NIV have that, that no man transgress and take advantage of his brother in this matter and what matter in the area of sexual purity and so put the two verbs together it's the idea of stepping over overstepping limits to take advantage and to overreach and to take something that doesn't belong to you and to sin against another brother in one way or another whether it's lusting after his wife whether it's committing adultery whatever, maybe it's taking a man's daughter, these types of things, that no man would overstep, that would, over, that would take advantage and reach across, to overreach is the idea of taking advantage, even by deception, that none of you, brethren, would be caught doing these types of things. Well, we've seen first that it's God's will That we would be sanctified, that we must live a holy life, and that we secondly that we must abstain from pornea, from sexual immorality, and now finally, and purity is inconsistent with God's purpose of calling you. Let's read the last part, last part of verse six and seven and eight. Because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. And God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects, this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Impurity is inconsistent with God's purpose of calling you. He says very clearly, the purpose of your effectual call, taking you out of the domain of darkness, transferring you to the dominion of light, is holiness. That is his purpose. Sanctification, that is his purpose. And maybe Paul anticipates some type of objection. Well, why? Why is that so important? We see all this going on around us. And he gives three reasons. First, because God's vengeance is certainly there. God's purpose for you, that you'd be holy, and God's Holy Spirit. So first of all, in verse 6, those who live an immoral life, the Lord will judge. He says, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Lord there should refer to Jesus Christ in this context. The idea here is that if you dilly-dally with immorality, you will be dealt with injustice. Galatians 5 says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. And he lists all the deeds of the flesh. And he says, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual sin is primarily a sin against God, ultimately. Who did David confess to in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned. It's primarily a sin against God, and we need to not lose sight of that. If you fall into one of these sins, it's not just a matter of dealing with it horizontally, you better deal with it vertically. First Corinthians six, really verses thirteen to twenty. I wish we had time to read that whole section in its context, but uh, just suffice it to say that God owns you. He owns all of you. He owns all of your private parts, all of your your whole body. He owns you, and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price the precious blood of Christ don't think that this body is just something that you can just do with what you want John Calvin said nothing is more opposed to holiness than the defilement of fornication which pollutes the whole man that's really what Paul saying in those verses there well in verse 7 you were called for holiness this is God's purpose In sanctification, it indicates that the believer's position of holiness is a result of what? Of that effectual calling that took place in time by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you were off serving your lust and you did not care about God, God in time sent the Holy Spirit and quickened you and called you to set you apart from those things that you used to do. To set you apart to holiness. That's the purpose of his calling. For God has not called you for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. It's so simple. It's so clear. It's right there. And then at verse 8, God is the one who, will, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Of course, it's only true believers that have the Spirit of God. And so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. <coughs> excuse me and it's very interesting in the original where he says to he who rejects this that is this command this this passage right here that he's talking about this section of of, uh, abstaining from sexual immorality and putting on holiness he who rejects this the idea there is to ignore to make invalid, to set that aside. And isn't that, you talk to people, it's like, well, you know, I know this is God's ideal for my life, but I'm young, I'm going to set that aside for now. That's the idea of the word here. You do not have the option, as a true child of God, to set aside this admonition and this, this command to be holy and to put off sexual immorality. It is not an option. And those who habitually engage in sexual sin demonstrate that they do not know God. But a very encouraging passage. Well, it's encouraging at the end. 1 Corinthians 6. I know most of you know it. I'll just read it verse, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He even as these words. Do not be deceived. There's a lot of deception with sexual sin, isn't there? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, he goes on, will inherit the kingdom of God. So you think, what hope? What hope? But he goes on, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You see, this, that's a picture of us before He got a hold of us. It kind of gets back to verse 7, but we were not called for the purpose of living like that, but for sanctification, to be called for holiness. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. And if you have been washed, why would you want to go back into that cave with the grime and get that white fur all grimy and all dirty again that you would come back and confess and repent and just cycle? Stay pure. God will give you grace. God will give you His ability and strength. Well, in conclusion, God is very concerned about our morality he's very concerned about our holiness the word of God is clear if you take the the teaching of the whole Bible and the idea of being set apart in the Old Testament the idea of being sanctified in the New God is concerned about these things and the encouragement is, is that God is the one that gives the grace and the strength for you to put these things off you can't do it in your own strength Don't go out of here thinking, well, I've got my pep talk and now I'll just be strong enough. No. Depend on His strength to help you in these things. Keep away from all defilement. So much of it, though, it just begins with such simple, practical things by putting rules in your life, putting limits in your life, to not allow things to come in. I'm very grieved about... How many are affected with pornography? It's just everywhere. It's a multi-billion, I don't know, maybe trillion dollar business in our day. So many get ensnared. You must look at that. Look at pornography as a poison. A poison that will harm you. If it doesn't kill you, it will certainly harm you. And which one of you would go willingly to the medicine cabinet and get the little crossbones and skull and take a little sip. It is a poison that must be avoided at all costs. And as you would open the door, as you would, as you would dilly-dally in that uh, once or twice or whatever, you can become hooked, you can become ensnared. And so then it's so much harder then to say no. The Proverbs speak of this. We need to be careful to not be ensnared. Some people live a secret life. The few discipline cases in the last 16 years at Grace Bible Church, there have been very few, but there have been some. The people that we thought were brothers in Christ for years come out and they're disciplined out of the church. They leave their wife and, you know, beware of living any type of a secret life. We need one another as the body of Christ. We need accountability. We need a healthy body life that we can be sharpened and challenged in these things. Look at the man Ted Haggard in Colorado. Obviously, he had elevated himself to some level to where he had no accountability. And here he is. He's with a, a homosexual, illegal drug use, and these types of things. Those things don't happen overnight. He didn't wake up that morning and decide, I think I'll just try this once. That was a pattern that was exposed. Rest assured, beware of anything in your life that is something that's secret, something that you're hiding. I would not be surprised if there's not someone here tonight who is ensnared now in this area. I just want to encourage you, pastorally, to get accountability, to confess that, to get right to have accountability, to have brothers around you, or sisters around you, to help you. But you need to confess that. What better way to start off another year, the year 2007, what better way to start off a new year than having a determination to live a holy life, than putting off a sin that maybe has been on your back for years and, and, and tearing that off and asking God for strength and giving accountability and growing so that you never fall into that sin again. What better way to begin a new year? We must be diligent to have a desire and a love to see that there is a beauty and holiness That is God's character. It should attract us as His children. There is a beauty there and that we would want that and that we would never think that we can do this in our own strength. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We need to remember that it is God that is working in us. Literally, He is the one energizing us. So we work out our salvation, but He is working in us to enable us to do these things. I mentioned it last week. It is a beginning a new year. Make use of the means of grace. It is so important to be in your Bible daily, to be praying, to have a, a communion with God, not a laundry list, a communion because of who He is and what He has done. Praising Him to consider these things. Being with God's people, making use of midweek Bible studies, fellowship, even the Lord's Supper, getting back to the basics of remembering the cost of your salvation, of why you've even already been called and set apart, is because of the work of Christ. And if you're here tonight, and you think, I know nothing of this holiness, how I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For some of you young people, that you would consider that if I am not set apart unto holiness by God, I will certainly be set apart from holiness and sent to hell in the last day. The time is short, and you must look to Christ. You must believe and trust in Him, admit that you're a sinner, confess your sins, and He will save you. He says He turns away none. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And those who come to me, I turn away none. So come to him if you do not know him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how we bow before you, thanking you for this passage before us. Lord, readily admitting how each one here has needed to hear these words. Lord, how I pray that you would do a mighty work here. How I pray that you would purify How I pray that you would further sanctify for your own glory the people within these four walls. Have mercy on us, O God. Strengthen us, I pray. Increase our faith that we may be those that are shining examples to the world and perhaps even to other Christians that are in churches that hear nothing of sin and holiness. O Father, we pray that you would preserve us we thank you that you who began a good work will indeed complete that. And that brings us much encouragement that even in the pilgrimage as we do stumble, as we will fall to our knees, yea, the righteous man will get up. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are the one that gets us up and you are the one that keeps us on the way. Thank you, O oh God, for this time and your holy word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.